Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates and as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Sibylline Insight Podcast. As ever, there is a lot going on in the world. However, this week we selected from the many things happening to look at some select and therefore potentially more niche areas of interest to security intelligence professionals. So thank you for joining us as our analysts and guests take you through the realms of conspiracy theories, misinformation, developments in East Africa, the latest on the EU, and last but not least, that dreaded word, Brexit. And with us today is Lisa Kaplan. Lisa, welcome. Lisa is the CEO and founder of Aletheia, which is a DC-based tech-enabled consulting firm countering misinformation and disinformation. And Lisa, I think you've been doing that for the last few years. So thank you for joining us and talking about a topic which I know is of huge interest to nearly every analyst uh, I speak to these days, which is, of course, misinformation and, and disinformation arena. And if you don't mind me saying, I mean, it's quite a, a niche capability that you've got in your firm. And I mean that in the most complimentary uh, possible way. But what got you into that? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And, um, you know, that's quite the introduction. So thank you. So as you mentioned, I'm the founder of Aletheia Group, um, a firm that detects and mitigates instances of disinformation and misinformation. And I got into this space about three years ago now. I was working on a Senate campaign and there was nothing remarkable about the 2018 Senate campaign that I was on, other than the fact that it was the first campaign since the 2016 campaign that were happening in the United States. And in my role, I was the digital director. And what happened was special counsel Robert Mueller's indictment came out in February of 2018 of the Russians who influenced the 2016 elections. And the indictment that was written, it was written in plain plain language. And it was written in such a way that I don't actually think the special counsel thought that the Kremlin was going to extradite these agents to stand trial in the United States. But what it did give us was it gave us the playbook. It explained what the Russians did and how they did it. And I sat there and I thought to myself, okay, how would we know if and when this was happening to us? Um, You know, if there were an influence campaign, would we even know what was going on? And if we are able to to detect something, what is it that we would actually do about it? And so what I did was I worked with my team and developed a strategy to be able to go out and figure out what was happening in our digital universe, knowing that disinformation and the attempts to influence large portions of the population really only matters if people see it, believe it, and change their behavior. We had to scope the universe somehow. So for us, in the context of an election, we decided that we would um, act if disinformation appeared to be targeting two decision points. So the first is whether or not an individual would participate in the election. So we would look for things along the lines of voter suppression, disinformation about when, where, and how to vote, that sort of thing. And then the second decision point that we thought could potentially be influenced is, okay, if if a voter is going to vote, who are they going to vote for? And are there any disinformation campaigns or nefarious narratives that could potentially seek to influence somebody's decision as to who they're going to cast their ballot for? 
we also had, of course, had, um, unfortunately, the, the benefit of understanding what happened around Brexit as well. And so as we were looking um, as to what might happen, we, we used those historic examples. And when I say historic, I really mean only a couple of years old at the time, but in the age of the internet, a day is about a year. And so we took a look and we said, how will we understand what happened? Flash forward, I started Alethea Group after the campaign because I really came to view this issue as a national security threat versus a political issue. So while absolutely disinformation manifests itself in politics, it also affects everything from companies to private individuals. And so we further defined, uh, refined our capabilities, developed technology, and really been able to improve our, our efficiency to be better, faster, stronger at identifying these nefarious networks that could potentially target corporations, political candidates, private individuals before it has an opportunity to affect their brand, their reputation, their bottom lines. Right. And I think we focused on how much this has grown in the last few years, and I think brought into stark focus, of course, 2016, 2018, Brexit. You had to mention Brexit. We're trying to get away from it. Um, it, pretending it, pretend it, it never happened i know well uh yeah it hasn't quite worked for it but um you know we're nearly at the end of that one but again the news of obviously very high profile recent examples of i guess the, the ability of that capability to operate particularly in the social media landscape and something i think we're all obviously now very very cognizant of um at least as analysts and observers but of course this isn't a new trend is it really i mean i think the soviets started doing this in the 1920s as a structured um a structured initiative and obviously we're, we're probably going to talk about the russian capability quite a lot in this because it's most prominent but we know that many others are doing it and of course we did it ourselves we actually got so good at countering um the russians i think in the form of the us and the uk and, and five eyes and others that in the 80s i think um gorbachev actually complained to reagan about how effective we were being that it almost wasn't fair <laughs> uh, that we beat them at their own game but i guess of course we then stopped concerning ourselves with that in the early 90s and shut down the initiatives and uh, I think have been caught hopping again when it's when it's revised because it you know it's a hundred year old part of of the Russian um, you know structured mindset and obviously I guess misinformation disinformation and storytelling for purpose uh, whether nefarious or just because it's a good story um, and don't let the truth get in the way of it has been going on for such a long time hasn't it so um, you know are there lasting lessons to be learned or or has social media really you know just changed that landscape um, you know in, in a fundamental way. So I do think that social media has changed the landscape because you're right. Lying to achieve a goal is not exactly a new or novel concept. And it goes way back from before the 80s. Um, so I, I do think that we need to take that into consideration. However, the the difference with the the digital world in which we're living is just the rapid speed at which information gets shared and that's any information. So there's no editorial review if you want to tweet something or if you want to post something on Facebook or Instagram. Um, and the challenge is also, um, so it's not just the speed at which this information travels and has the ability to reach people. It's also the fundamental structures that make up the social media platforms and the internet. So in the United States, and I'm sure it's similar statistics for other nations as well, you know, about 70% of Americans report to get their news on Facebook. Um, Facebook was never designed to um, necessarily 
be a news aggregator. It, it was designed to build online communities and it was designed to connect people. It was designed to show people information that they think they wanna see based on things like um, your behavior, the information you're engaging with, the individuals that you're friends with, the different pages that you like, that sort of thing. And so what that means is it's created these algorithmic silos that really do act as our own echo chambers. So if you think about your own social media feeds, your own Twitter feeds, your own Facebook feeds, it's probably the same news sources, the same individual accounts that are coming up time and time again. And that's because of what you're interacting with. So for example, if you're um, you know, only reading the BBC, odds are you're not coming across Breitbart organically in your feed. You're not coming across you know, far left sources organically in, in your feed. You're probably not coming across Chinese language sources organically in, in your feed. However, what that means is we're also not seeing opposing narratives and the internet is not reflective of the public square. And so what's happening is we are applying the same principles um, to the context of the internet when what we've really done is we've created these echo chambers that are easy for a bad actor to then micro-target different communities and populations based on the biases that they think those communities have. And so that's the piece that's really different and new. And it, what it boils down to is trust. So different communities will trust different news outlets. They'll trust different individuals. And, you know, maybe some of those individuals are posting things that aren't true. And so whether it's a real person or a fake account or somebody who's sharing false information, if people believe it, they may ultimately alter their behavior which then in turn is how the adversary accomplishes their goal. Yeah, as you say, it's effects driven. They're seeking, you know, and what matters, they achieve an effect. It's interesting. I've certainly seen companies flip out about a social media post that had maybe, you know, five or six views, but they didn't like right. what it said. And they took it because it's on the internet. It's in their mind. I think it must immediately have had a billion views. And the reality was it's, you know, unfollowed, ineffective. It then becomes effective when the company reacts to it and draws attention to it. Um, exactly. You know, and I've seen that certainly. And actually, you've you've played into the adversary's hands. And so, you know, I think it is very true, especially in these these places. Actually, how effective are some of these chambers or or, or messages? And I think there's an interesting point with with what you mentioned, which is actually for analysts researching this. You know, I think the majority of analysts they probably think they're very well formed and well balanced, but. I guess, depending on exactly what tools they're using, and I guess if they're using something like DuckDuckGo, they might get a more or be able to search. But even the search engines, of course, are feeding people's views of what they see based on where they are, what they've looked at in the past and so on. So our analysts actually falling prey to not seeing contrary narratives, even though we think we are. We think we're great at this. So it depends on the individual analysts and the tool set that they're using and frankly, what goal they're trying to achieve. Because if you go back to the example that you just described, you know, uh, somebody posts a video about a company and it only gets five or six views. If nobody's talking about it, you know, how does that analyst then weigh the relative importance of that piece of content, understanding what the customer's goals are? You know, with that little of a reach, the, the analyst may want to recommend a quiet action and versus a big communications response. I do think that some of the statistics are pretty jarring in terms of 
disinformation's impact and effects on specific communities. So to use the example of the U.S. election, there have been widespread um, disinformation allegations of voter fraud. There has been absolutely no evidence to suggest that there was widespread evidence of voter fraud. But what we saw was, and um, the reason why I bring this up is because ultimately it was effective. So what I what we saw was on election day, there were we noticed a lot of narratives that were happening specifically in Pennsylvania that were alleging fraud that were debunked throughout the day. And then the next day we saw that those fraud narratives were now taking place in all of the different swing states, including some that had been called, such as Florida, allegations of ballots that were thrown out, allegations of, you know, ballots that never existed, but were uploaded a um, hundred thousand of them at once for one candidate. Again, all of these were debunked. But then we started to see things like lawsuits get filed, which further legitimized the narrative because our, our legal system is a legitimate institution. And why would somebody, you know, file a lawsuit unless they had the legal grounds to do so? You know, so on and so forth. We saw more real individuals, more influential people, more people who were trusted by specific communities begin to spread these narratives. And we also saw, you know, foreign state media uh, playing a role in amplifying these narratives by writing articles that then got an insane amount of traction. And that's not even a covert attempt to influence. That's, for example, RT through now through polling. So Politico and Morning Consult did a poll. 70% of Republicans think that there was widespread voter fraud. So it worked. You know, if the goal is to get people to not trust the election results, then these disinformation narratives may have worked. And so all that to say, um, it, it really does then ask the question of analysts, okay, then what matters? Because did that one piece of content matter or was it the aggregate of that content? And if you aren't in those communities, you may be seeing entirely different narratives where we'll see um, you know, more, more liberal segments of the population say things like the president is trying to steal the election. And it, it creates these alternate realities. And so where, where it matters for analysts is we need to be really aware of what online communities we naturally tend to fall in. Um, and there are certain things that analysts can do, such as seek out information that they may not necessarily agree with or you know, seek out different points of view in order to make their algorithms um, a little bit broader in terms of the type of information that they're algorithmically shown by the social media platforms. But I think it's important for every analyst to be able to understand their own biases and understand how they may bring that into the workplace and what that could ultimately mean for their work product. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned this because we had to obviously do a lot of work on this. Um, we've been very aware of this issue, particularly with the US and particularly being aware that, you know, although we're predominantly a US company, obviously we have a British voice at the helm and we're, you know, we're sensible. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think people were, especially in the security industry, of course, I think people tended to have um, a certain set of views, you know, probably more to the right in general across the security industry. And of course, when you had these social things happening in the US, you know, it was striking very close to home, I think, for, for clients. And it was something that we worked a lot on to make sure that everything we did was absolutely as impartial as possible, you know, as reasoned as possible. Um, and in general, I think we were very successful with that. But we did have a few occasions where you'd be talking to someone and they would totally refute the idea of a threat from a particular side and then say, but you, you, you should only be talking about the other side in this. And these are security professionals and friends, you know, sometimes. And 
you know, that was very hard to navigate. We had to say, well, actually sitting back, you know, we can see the most likely course of events. We can see therefore which communities will be challenged. And, and actually we don't have flesh in the game in this. So we can, we can sit back and look at it. I think the same as people, of course, looking at Brexit objectively versus people sitting in London, looking at it. Um, and of course it's just being distanced from the emotion. And I guess when you're caught in the emotion yourself, then it's incredibly hard to make that judgment. Now, weirdly, we can do it for Kenya or something like that, maybe because you know we can treat that. And you know, the typical way an intelligence analyst writes about a country, and I remember there was a Kenyan journalist who was writing about the US, the way the US writes about Kenya, and it was both amusing and eye-opening. Um, but it, you know, it made us think about actually the way in which I think we perceive different things, and of course, our emotional involvement. And I guess one other point is that social media being more of a graphical medium, I think increasingly so, a video medium. You know, it has a greater emotional impact maybe than a dry article would do that requires time and effort to read that maybe has stats and thoughts, but just doesn't grab the emotions in the way that misinformation, disinformation can do. Absolutely. And I think to that point, disinformation is designed to target our emotions. That's how it works. And that's one of the reasons why it's so effective. You know, fear, anger, hope, those are all really powerful motivators. Um, you know, when you think back to the early days of the coronavirus, you know, we didn't really know what was happening. People were afraid for their ability to, you know, live a normal life. They were afraid for their health. They were afraid for the economy. They were afraid for their ability to access resources in the United States. There was a total run on grocery stores. There were certain products that were all of a sudden hard to find, like pasta, for example. And the one of the reasons why it's effective is because it's emotionally engaging. Um, and bad actors know that. And so another way that analysts can protect themselves is if you see a headline that looks too too extreme or something salacious when it shouldn't be or something that is just evoking an emotion, it's really helpful to just take a pause and ask yourself why you're seeing what you're seeing. Do the, you know, things we're trained to do, understand where the information's coming from. But um, to do that, you have to be an active user of social media and not just passively scrolling through your feeds and absorbing whatever information comes across just because it's coming across your screen. You know, it's, it's almost like we need to go back to the 90s when people used to say, don't believe everything you see on the internet. The problem is now we're believing everything we see on the internet. <laughs> I think the funny thing is people still say, don't believe what we see on the internet. And then it shows that 80% of people still go on. The people that said that still believe what they see because it's just too, exactly. it's too complicated to start distrusting everything. And I guess actually, even if we did distrust anything, that's also playing into a different sort of uh, adversary campaign, isn't it? Where they're trying to erode uh, our trust in ourselves, you know, just as a, as a tool Correct. of insecurity because, you know, why not? You know, it's definitely of, uh, definitely of advantage then. So, uh, yeah, it, it is it is very difficult, especially, and I have an observation, you mentioned the BBC earlier, and I've certainly noticed that the BBC in the last couple of years, the headlines, and it was pointed out to me, and I, I, you know, when you sort of see something, you can't stop seeing it, but the headlines have become more and more almost clickbaity uh, in mm -hmm. that regard. You know, it's things like, the headline is, COVID ruined my life. You know, then you went to click on the article and read it. And I can't imagine a few years ago, the BBC having a headline like that, it would have said something like, effects of COVID, you know, most acute and under 30s, you know, or something like that, right. you know, talking about the economy. And that's what the article would have been. But now it's a emotional title on most of, of what they're doing because they're having to compete. And I guess if they didn't do that, exactly. they can look. So how do we how do we roll this back? Or do we roll this back? So it's a great question. I think there are a lot of opportunities to roll this back. So I want to start by addressing some of 
what you just talked about in terms of the BBC all of a sudden having to now compete with our foreign adversaries and with our, and, you know, junk domains, fake news sites, that sort of thing. You know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that people are competing for clicks. They're competing um, because if you click on an article, you will be shown a digital advertisement. And odds are that that digital advertisement will then help fund um, whatever organization is putting up the the article. So whether that's, you know, the BBC, um, who is adapting to a post-newspaper sort of world, or a a junk domain that's being run by a for-profit disinformation company, um, it doesn't matter. But the BBC has to compete for clicks in that way. You know, I think also we need to start having serious conversations about the algorithms, which frankly control the information that we're seeing on a day-to-day basis. And I'm not talking about limits to freedom of speech. I'm talking to technical engineering fixes that can make the digital environment more reflective of the public square, which we base our our laws and our norms around. You know, there are ways that the social media platforms, you know, they've been able to score all of this information and be able to determine who wants to see what. That means they also have the information necessary to show people opposing viewpoints organically, not Mm -hmm. just through fact checking, which the jury's out as to whether or not that actually hurts versus helps. So I think that those are some of the things that we can do. And then I think also countries need to, frankly, push back against the nefarious actors, especially state actors who are doing this more. As you pointed out, we were able to accomplish this in the 80s. Why can't we accomplish it now? So those are the sorts of of steps that we need to really start taking. And it's never going to be easier to solve than it was yesterday. This problem's only growing more complex and more challenging as technology increases, as people continue to lose trust in the media, as we continue to grow apart. So the time to act is frankly as soon as possible. And a lot of these changes don't necessarily um, require regulation, although they'll likely come as a result of regulation. Brilliant. And I think, yep, yeah, we've seen in the last couple of weeks, haven't we? You know, Facebook and Twitter have been on the hill twice. A lot of talk about how things might go under a new administration um, and the pressure we put on them. And of course, I think the other big thing being the fragmentation of social media increasingly, and actually to the point that people are forming their own echo chambers on different platforms. Um, exactly. Yet to see how sustainable that will be. Um, I guess the good news for you is that um, obviously, with your company being a specialist in this area, um, much as I think we'd all like to see it improved. It sounds like it's not going to in a hurry. So hopefully that means lots for you. And for those of you out there that need assistance in this area, you know, we strongly recommend Lisa uh, as a real expert in this and one of the people who's looking at it very hard. So Lisa, I hope to have you on again as we address, I know the many things analysts are interested in uh, about this area. And thanks for taking the time today to share your views. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So on the 16th of November, Poland and Hungary vetoed the European Union's next seven-year budget, as well as a crucial coronavirus recovery plan, over a mechanism that links the disbursement of EU funding to the rule of law. The veto and the subsequent hold-up of the budget have, therefore, plunged the EU into a new political crisis, as the economic recovery of the bloc remains uncertain. Although by vetoing the entire budget, both Hungary and Poland are also effectively delaying the distribution of much-needed funds to their own countries, Lack of strong domestic public opposition to the veto will mean Budapest and Warsaw are likely to continue maintaining their current position. 
As such, the stalemate will further increase the pressure on the German presidency to reach a compromise, particularly as Europe struggles to cope with the economic downturn. This could ultimately lead to some of the rule of law conditions being diluted, should Hungary and Poland continue to stand in the way of the funding plan. So with us to discuss the situation are Liana Semchuk, who is lead analyst with a team for Europe and Eurasia, and Alex Lord, who is our regional analyst. And Liana and Alex, welcome to both of you, and thanks for going through this uh, topic with us today. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of pressure for this budget to pass, but is the most recent veto likely to cause significant delays or alternatively, will Poland or Hungary change their position once they've made their point? Thanks, Justin. So exactly. So as you saw earlier this week, both Hungary and Poland blocked the seven year EU budget and the COVID-19 recovery funding package due to their opposition um, over the mechanism that would allow EU to withhold these funds based on uh, rule of law violations. Um, at the moment, it seems very unlikely that um, either Poland or Hungary will change their current position on the matter. I mean, the irony, of course, is that both countries also need these economic recovery funds and are among the largest recipients of them. But the current rhetoric from Warsaw and Budapest, as well as their track record as it pertains to responding to criticism from the EU on issues that have to do with human rights or various governance variables, does not currently suggest that either is likely to change their current stance. I think also in many ways, both countries have been emboldened by the fact that despite a lot of criticism from the EU in the past regarding developments in both countries uh, on issues that have to do with women's rights and media freedoms, um, the fact that there has been an absence of any meaningful political and economic consequences in the past definitely cont contributes to the problem right now. But of course, in a, in a long term, realistically, neither Poland or Hungar Hungary can really afford to lose billions in funding because ultimately this could work to undermine their own government stability, as we've seen diminished socioeconomic conditions and government's mishandling of the pandemic have um, led to mass protests and, and revolutions in many parts of the world recently. So in many ways, this vetoing of the budget um, is a somewhat of a dangerous game to play for them in their own societies. But I think in the short term, by contrast, there is arguably a lot more immediate pressure on the EU presidency on, on Germany to to work to find a solution and find a compromise to break this deadlock. But this will be very difficult as both uh, Netherlands and France have uh, come out and said that they cannot accept any attempts to further water down any rule, rule of law conditions for this funding package. Um, so yes, there's definitely a risk of further delays. But in the event that there is no agreement on the EU budget by the end of this year, the existing budget would most likely be extended on a monthly basis for the next year. Um, I think lastly, another option that France and the Netherlands are, have, have said that they are exploring and considering is to proceed without Poland and Hungary, and that would limit the budget and the recovery fund to the 25 other member states. But at the moment, this is deemed as the last resort, so discussions are most likely set to continue, and, and um, there is hope that Germany will be able to come up with some solution that can be accepted by, by everybody. But at the moment, we're not expecting any major breakthroughs from a meeting between the EU leaders that is set to take place today on 19th of November. And so for now, the situation will most likely remain quite, quite difficult. 
Yeah, I would um, echo Liana's points. I think the, uh, the the problem is that both sides and the extremes are quite entrenched at the moment, like uh, Liana mentioned. So on one hand, we've got Poland and Hungary. On the other, we've got that more hardliners, France and particularly the Netherlands. But I think we should also put the European Parliament in that camp as well. So any budget, whether it is a compromise budget or whether they remove the rule of law conditions or keep them in, that needs to go through the European Parliament. And that has been the most vocal EU institution in insisting rule of law conditions are part of any budget. So that is a really important aspect to this whole dynamic as well. We're seeing the drama is happening at the council at the moment with the vetoes. But even if the EU presidency manages to organise a compromise, which, like Liana said, the Netherlands is particularly against, it would still have to then go through the European Parliament. Um, and like I said, they've been very vocal on this. So there, it's quite a complicated dynamic of very various different perspectives and interests across the whole block. But we're definitely seeing this sort of exacerbate the East-West divide. We're seeing Western governments entrenching their positions versus um, Hungary and, and Poland. I think that's going to create a lot of resentment and like we saw with the original agreement many months ago with this for this record-breaking budget. There are a lot of dynamics and tensions within the bloc, which I think this particular dispute is only going to exacerbate and highlight. And I think you fit on a main point there and something we often hear from commentators who might say that the EU is an institution in crisis. But what does this tell us about the ability of the EU to continue functioning uh, effectively. And I mean, I would say from my own point of view, rumours of the EU's uh, demise have been greatly exaggerated over the years. But to what extent is this a fundamental crisis, Leona? Well, firstly, I think it's definitely important to, to highlight and note that this trend of democratic backsliding and divisions within the bloc is something that we have noted um, as a problem uh, for some time now and, and have reported on as well. I don't think that this necessarily means that the entire system is now in crisis because of this veto, but one of the underlying problems from my point of view is that from the start, the whole system seems to have been built on the assumption that once a country becomes a democracy, there is no going back. But of course, this assumption is now being tested in both uh, Hungary and in Poland. So of course, with neither of these countries facing any meaningful consequences, from the EU, this remains problematic. And I think right now, definitely the situation um, undermines the ability of the EU to function effectively, particularly as a time is crucial right now and many countries are awaiting these recovery funds. So timeliness is definitely key here. And this is something that definitely tested and will continue to test the EU's ability to respond effectively. And of course, you know, debates about these conditions around the budget, therefore, take away and detract from potentially more important topics that need to be happening, such as exchange of information on, for example, key lessons learned during the first year of the pandemic amongst various countries, potentially prevent also the EU's ability to come up with a unified and coherent strategy to prevent any potential um, third wave of, of um, the pandemic in, in 
2021, in the first months of 2021. Um, and that is something that the EU has been criticized in the past for not having been responsive enough or unified enough from the very beginning. And so again, whilst I don't think this is the crisis just yet, this, will, this is definitely a critical time and a critical moment that does present a very difficult task for the region um, especially as the hope was very much that with this unprecedented recovery plan, there would be a bit more um, of a sense of unity, of ability to rebuild trust. Um, but this will continue to be tested, especially if the budget uh, proceeds without Poland and without Hungary. Right. And as you mentioned there, this is a trend of the erosion of democratic norms that we've seen for a while. Is this going to emerge in other European countries as well, or is it going to remain more limited to, to Poland and Hungary? To what extent will this spread? Yes, yeah, so um, Poland and Hungary are definitely the most prominent examples of this trend. Like Liano said, we've been following this for quite a while now, and uh, they've been introducing various controversial reforms, legislation, etc., that has created some tension with Brussels. Both Poland and Hungary are currently under Article 7, disciplinary proceedings on their various issues on um, undermining press freedoms, introducing anti-NGO legislation, and in the case of um, Poland, undermining the um, independence of the judiciary. So they are very much the most prominent, but it's far from limited to those countries. The fellow Visegrad countries, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, have remained um, a prominent cause for concern um, as far as rule of law goes as well. Both of their governments have frequently in the past sided with Hungary and Poland on these issues, although I think it is important to note that both the Czech and the Slovak governments have not supported Hungary and Poland in their veto this time around. Um, both have come in favour of um, passing the budget and the Covid recovery fund. So there is a difference there. We um, They're not in line at this particular point um, on this sort of hardline stance that Warsaw and Budapest have, have taken. But interestingly, I think actually Slovenia is a one to watch in this. So Slovenia's um, populist prime minister, Janusz Jansa, came out after the veto in strong support of Hungary's position. Um, while they didn't actually veto the budget themselves, Jansa basically supported Viktor Orban, um, the Hungarian Prime Minister's calls for the conditions to basically be removed and reiterated some of his criticisms. So this is it's a, quite an interesting dynamic because Slovenia has in recent years, particularly under Jansa, been an increasing cause for concern. So Slovenia has seen anti-NGO legislation, uh, particularly environmental NGOs, um, and limiting their room for manoeuvre. And the prime minister regularly attacks the press. So we're seeing those issues in Slovenia. But I mean, these issues are also present in Bulgaria and to a lesser extent, Romania. Bulgaria, after all, we've been seeing quite a lot of anti-government protests in the last few months. Many of the issues that triggered that are related to the rule of law and the relationship between Sofia and Brussels in that regard. So this is quite a broader issue within the bloc. And I think one of the key things to pick out of this whole dispute is that the EU's credibility on the issue of rule of law is very much at stake. So if a compromise deal is agreed, if the conditions are watered down, I think this will only embolden these governments to defy Brussels further, particularly on the rule of law, but potentially other issues. So Poland is this year considering similar anti-NGO legislation, which is already in force in Hungary, 
which incidentally is very similar and modeled on Russia's um, NGO limiting legislation. So if Warsaw and Budapest seemingly get their way, as it were, in this dispute, I think it could definitely undermine the bloc's ability and authority going forward to stimmy the democratic backsliding, which we are we are um, watching in Central and Southeast Europe. And so speaking of crises within the bloc, so I guess I have to mention the B word. Um, so Brexit is another notable event that's coming up, of course. We're expecting, uh, I think we originally expected obviously progress by the time we, we recorded this. Uh, that's been pushed back a bit. Uh, I suspect it will keep being pushed back for a little while if we get to something. But what are the immediate things we're looking for, the team are looking for, and the implications we're looking out for on the Brexit front? Yeah, so the perennial issue of Brexit. Things have changed quite a lot in the last few hours, um, actually. So we've just heard that one of the EU's negotiating uh, people, they've contracted COVID. So the high-level talks between um, Michel Barnier and the UK are actually now have ceased. So there's significant uncertainty now, um, significantly more than there was even a few hours ago, about what actually is going to happen, considering the very tight timelines we're dealing with. So like you mentioned, Justin, we sort of hoped for a, a, a deal in principle potentially to be agreed by today in time for the European teleconference. Um, that's not happened. Next week, I think, will be an important crunch period. Um, there's discussion of next Monday on the 23rd as being a potential date, but negotiations could well continue. And in light of the very recent developments, I think they probably will be pushed back even further. But as the deadlines are pushed back more and more, it really limits the, the time for manoeuvre, particularly because of the need for parliamentary ratification. So this is a key issue that's driving the, the, the negotiations at this point. It's the need to get it through the parliaments before the transition period ends at the end of the year. Now that's a relatively easy process in the UK, just goes through a single um, parliament. But from the, from the European side, you've got to get it to the European Parliament. It's got to be translated into all of the working languages. It's got to be scrutinised and then passed through all of the member states' parliaments as well. So that's a quite a lengthy process and complicated process. So there's quite a lot of uncertainty around that at the moment. And we'll have to very much see how these very recent developments impact that. I mean never say die with Brexit, I think. But I mean, we could be potentially discussing extending the transition period, although Prime Minister Boris Johnson has absolutely ruled that out on many occasions in the past. But we'll have to wait and see a lot um, of uncertainty at the moment. Um, and, and time is ticking by. Yeah, I love the fact that we're at a point where you're able to say it's comparatively simple to get something to do with Brexit through the UK Parliament. Um, it shows you just exactly how big the process is uh, on the EU side. And I suppose we are approaching a point where something's going to have to give way to make uh, final progress in this. And as you say, we're looking out for some positive signs, at least give business some certainty. But uh, I think we all agree that whatever deal we do get is going to be quite a thin deal, isn't it? And, and pretty much a bare bones deal, I suspect, at this point um, and require a lot more fleshing out. But uh, ultimately, it's not done until it's done. And of course, you can always carry on negotiating and keep fleshing out your agreements, can't you? So I think we view this absolute of a no deal Brexit uh, of being obviously when the transition period ends, but it doesn't mean negotiations will stop at that point and we will never talk to the EU again, does it? So I'm sure it's a topic that we'll keep giving back to the analytical community over the coming year, at least. We haven't heard the last of it yet. So uh, with that, I should let 
uh, both of you get back to obviously what's a very busy afternoon looking at these issues. Uh, Liana and Alex, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Justin. Thanks. Fighting in Ethiopia's Tigray region has intensified significantly since the 4th of November, when Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed announced a six-month state of emergency and launched military operations to remove the regional government. Operations to cut off potential supply routes through Sudan have seen heavy fighting in the west of the region, allegedly killing hundreds of soldiers and resulting in human rights abuses against civilians. 27,000 are believed to have fled so far across the Sudanese border. Meanwhile, the government has conducted airstrikes against the regional capital, prompting retaliatory rocket strikes against airports in Eritrea. The military is certainly now preparing for an offensive in the region. We're therefore going to look at some of the roots of the conflict and its slightly trajectory over the coming weeks. And with us is Benedict Manzin, who is the Middle East and Africa analyst for the team, and Philip Riding, the lead Middle East and Africa analyst from the Insight team. So both of you, welcome. Thank you for joining. And uh, obviously a topic of significant regional interest, I think, given potential escalation in the region, and of course, the focus we've had and discussed in the podcast in recent weeks on, on Sudan, uh, Egypt, and of course, the building the Great Renaissance Dam and some other issues in the area. So, you know, what has prompted the Ethiopian government to launch a military operation to remove the TPLF in the region? Yeah, well, the, uh, the conflict has its roots uh, in an internal uh, political dispute, which predates the premiership of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed ultimately going back to the formation of the EPRDF governing coalition after the civil war, which ended in 1991. Uh, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, despite representing the minority northern Tigray community, uh, were a principal party in this military effort, and because of that, secured leading roles within this coalition. Uh, they were then able to solidify this position by implementing ethnic federalism, which granted regional autonomy based upon membership to distinct ethnic groups or nations. Promises of this sort of autonomy were broadly accepted due to the legacy of the imperial and then communist period, which was widely perceived as authoritarian rule from a central base dominated by Amaran elites. But it allowed the TPLF to continue to exercise disproportionately high levels of influence by dividing potential opposition among myriad ethnic groups. So they secured leading positions in the military, the government and business, but Ethiopia's largest ethnic communities, the Amara and Aroma people, felt marginalized, leading in 2016 to mass violent protests. This ultimately led to the appointment of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, an Aromo, who launched liberalizing political and economic reforms to address this unrest. This meant redressing the system of government that the TPLF had dominated since the 1990s, removing TPLF officials from senior positions, targeting them in anti-corruption investigations, and crucially, beginning to challenge the system of ethnic federalism in order to create a more cohesive Ethiopian national identity. As part of this process, Ahmed restructured the ruling coalition into a single national party, the Prosperity Party. The TPLF left, making Tigray the only region in Ethiopia to be dominated by an opposition party. So you can see why the TPLF felt Ahmed represented a significant threat to their power going forward. And you can see the basis of the animosity between the two blocs. Subsequently, in 2020, when Ahmed postponed elections throughout the country, the TPLF challenged Ahmed by promising to go ahead with their elections in Tigray regardless. These elections were held, 
both sides labelled the other as illegitimate, and the federal government threatened to take away funding from the TPLF. The TPLF said that this was basically a declaration of war, and subsequently, allegedly, militias that they backed attacked military positions in Tigray on the night of the 3rd and 4th of November. This is what prompted the launch of the military operation to remove the TPLF by the federal government. Right, so as you say, you're pretty pretty understandable given the situation and something, I mean, is it something that analysts have seen coming? I think it was, it, it's always been a possibility, but it's definitely, I would definitely characterize it as the worst possible outcome. And ideally it could have been avoided. There was potentially an, an opportunity to engage the um, TPLF in a, in, a, in a process of dialogue to bring them back into the political center. But the, but the TPLF had made their demands for such a process sort of um, exceptionally high and impossible for the government to really fathom because it, it meant removing Abiy Ahmed from power and essentially setting up a transitional government. So they couldn't accept the terms for these talks. But yes, there was routes to uh, a de-escalation, but these were, these were missed. Yeah, and of course, this is, I guess, a significant backward step for Ethiopia in many ways, given the recent trajectory you're saying was positive, was there was much talk of national unity, there was certainly a lot of coverage of uh, increasing markets in Ethiopia and, and access. And I guess this re this year, the region's seen uh, obviously a number of a number of threats. Uh, I know certainly famine um, building in Sudan, the issue with with locusts in the region and things like this that have gone under the radar a little bit that we sometimes talked about. So obviously, I guess it's yeah, it's, again, it's coming at a very sensitive time uh, regionally, which is something I want to dig into further in a bit. But what's happened since the, they started the operation? It, will the government uh, successfully manage to, to remove the TPLF or is it going to further destabilise um, the region? Obviously, the fragile or somewhat fragile relationship with Eritrea, um, potentially Sudan and, and obviously Egypt down the line. I think it's, it's worth stating from the off that, you know, as sort of alluded to by their dominance of, you know, the political structure for the last, well, coming up to three decades, they were obviously heavily entrenched, their, their influence rather, is heavily entrenched within um, the military. And so there was immediate talk as the operation began that um, a number of officers, Tigrayan officers, had defected and brought over sections of the military under TPLF control. Now, the, the government has denied this, that this took place and has denied that any military units have defected, but it does seem possible that this may have happened. And certainly trying to manage the kind of conflicting loyalties within the military, which have been built up over the last 30 years, will certainly complicate efforts to land decisive victories against the Tigrayans. On top of that, the TPLF have built up a truly extensive network of armed militia and paramilitary groups throughout the region. So they have a significant armed force to fall back on. Some estimate as many as 250,000 fighters. That, and then on top of that, they also have quite a significant degree of domestic support because I think there are many people in Tigray who have enjoyed a period of like I said, a couple of decades, where Tigrayans have been in a dominant position in the country nationally. They feel grateful for the TPLF uh, having essentially created that situation so that, that they do have quite a bit of domestic support to fall back on as well as that sort of military support. 
I think probably just to pick up on that point, it's, it's probably worth saying that another galvanizing and unifying factor for Tigrayan people um, to sort of fall into line behind the TPLF is the fact that the Tigray region is in essence under siege by a series of, of what the TPLF would, would think of as a sort of hostile adversaries. So obviously to the south, there's the federal government, but it isn't simply that obviously the federal government of, of Ethiopia, there is a, an ethnic hue to the, the nature of the operation that Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has, has launched. So, you know, for example, over the course of the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of fighting in the, the west of the Tigray region, which is borders Amhara, the, the, the region just to the south, um, which has had a, a sort of historic territorial dispute with the Tigrayans. So effectively, you know, the, the government operation has, has sought to capitalise on those kind of ethnic fault lines that are already there uh, and where they intersect with uh, territorial concerns. And likewise, from the north, although obviously Eritrea is a separate country, it's a country which fought a, a 10-year war, largely with the, the Tigrayan-led uh, government of Ethiopia back in uh, the 1990s. And much of the conflict took place in and around the Tigray region. And now that the Ethiopian federal government has a relatively positive relationship with, with Asmara, it effectively has set up a situation where the TPLF and its Tigrayan supporters are besieged by um, you know, forces which are non-Tigrayan, regardless of whether they're Ethiopian or not. So yeah, the, the scene is, has been set really for a kind of balkanization of, of um, Ethiopia's domestic security in the North, which obviously has some regional implications like you referred to before, Justin. Yeah, and so I guess we should should dig further into those. And so how is the conflict expected to develop, I guess, and, and what are the implications both for Ethiopia and for the wider region? Uh, well, I think, first of all, it's important to point out that it's hard to know exactly what's going on in Tigray because of the actions of the Ethiopian government to cut telecommunications and internet connections to the region. Um, so the only information we really get about the conflict is dribs and drabs from um, either uh, the TPLF um, themselves or the Ethiopian government, and both are obviously highly partisan. So it's, it's difficult to effectively identify really the reality of the situation. But it does appear that fighting has been heaviest in the west of the country, west of the region rather, as the Ethiopian army is attempting to cut supplies between the Tigrayan capital in Mekele and any potential routes through Sudan, which is essentially their only possibly friendly border. This would allow the military to fully encircle TPLF forces and thereby ensuring that they can't um, resupply or get more fuel or, um, or more ammunition. Subsequently to that, we know that they have been um, launching operations in the, in the eastern southern region of, of the Tigray. Allegedly, they captured the town of Alamata, and they have been making gains in the Shia region, uh, just to the south of Mekele. This in preparation, allegedly, for a larger assault on Mekele, which they are saying will take place in the next few days. Even if this assault was to go forward and was to be successful, it seems that, that the TPLF would be in a position to fall back on significant, sufficient domestic support and sufficient uh, militia support to maintain an armed insurgency in the region for a prolonged period. So, you know, e even if the military are successful in these coming days, which does appear unlikely given the strength of the military force that they are up against, 
it, this would this would not mean the end of violence. This would not mean the end of the conflict. The TPLF would be in a position to maintain violent armed conflict throughout the coming months. They, you know, they have a history of being able to launch uh, guerrilla insurgencies, which again dates back to the Ethiopian civil war. So we, we could expect violence to continue um, throughout the coming months, certainly. Right. Right. Uh, I, I think it's probably just, again, worth mentioning there that one of the things that we've seen so far with regards to um, impacting regional security has been the use of long-range rockets by um, the TPLF. So while you know, Ben's absolutely right that um, they look set to be able to launch an insurgency in the medium term, which will drag on for, for, you know, for at least several months, if, if not indefinitely, uh, in the short term, you know, we've seen airports in Asmara and Eritrea and then uh, regional airports within uh, Ethiopia being struck by uh, rockets fired from in and around uh, Mekele. So the one thing that the government operation might succeed in over the course of the next couple of weeks is, is curbing that threat to air traffic in the region, um, even if it doesn't obviously pre precipitate an end to, to conflict in Tigray itself. As you say, a significant a significant way of drawing people in, something I think that's been learned potentially from what we've seen in Yemen, uh, and obviously not a million miles away, and I'm sure lessons learned in, in insurgencies and, and similar actions in the region are, uh, are probably being passed around, aren't they? I mean, so in terms of the wider region, though, what else do we see coming from this? And obviously we've seen Egyptian, uh, Sudanese uh, joint drills, we've seen Sudan being brought back more in by the US in return partly for its uh, support towards Israel and a change of stance towards Israel that we discussed uh, a couple of weeks ago, Phil, didn't we? So what else do we see for the region? I, th I think it's, it, it's a difficult one because the Horn of Africa is is complicated insofar as there are there are many, as you've sort of alluded to there, there, there are many individual problems which are not necessarily closely related that nevertheless add up to a kind of catalogue of of issues with which businesses will contend. I think in the case of Ethiopia, the real tragedy in a commercial sense is, is that this is a lost opportunity. So uh, as we sort of talked about earlier on, um, Ethiopia has enjoyed some really spectacular growth over the course of the last 20 years and under Abiy Ahmed looks set to, to really accelerate that process and now is on the precipice of a potentially indefinite and extremely disruptive civil war. And that you know, inevitably, given uh, Ethiopia's complex history with Eritrea, looks set to draw in at least that one state, which obviously, while it doesn't have a huge amount of commercial interest in security terms, a relapse into violence between forces in Tigray, uh, Eritrea, and Ethiopia will have knock-on consequences for, say, uh, Djibouti, which handles a substantial amount of uh, Ethiopian trade. And although, while Djibouti itself is secured by a presence of, of foreign troops, you know, clearly, clearly a, a high degree of instability just to its north and, and west is, is not promising. As you mentioned as well, given the, the complications with the Grand Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopia can expect little support from, say, Sudan and, and Egypt, given their somewhat fractious relationship over the course of the last year. So there will be a substantial amount of regional pressure on Ethiopia to step back from allowing this to become, you know, a highly disruptive regional conflict that um, impacts on both overland travel and, uh, as we alluded to before, in relation to, um, you know, attacks against airports also impacting air travel at a time when, you know, um, even established airlines are struggling because of the impact on passengers as a consequence of COVID. So th there is a, a sort of, yeah, myriad of both tactical safety concerns, particularly for, for companies that have invested in 
uh, Ethiopian manufacturing capability over the course of, of the last few years and are now um, potentially going to have to step back quite markedly as, a, as a, if this you know, becomes the type of conflict that it certainly has the capacity to, namely one which lasts for you know, in excess of, of 12 months. And yes, these ethnic tensions rise, not just in the northern part of Ethiopia, but obviously in those other regions that Ben spoke about before that have previously enjoyed autonomy and, and now maybe experiencing less of that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's complex and um, it will probably get more complicated. Ben, I don't know if you have any more to add on that. Just on the, on the idea of, of, you know, wider regional uh, intervention or involvement, I mean, the key, the key question mark does remain um, Eritrea, which obviously has, as you alluded to before, Phil, this history of animosity with the TPLF. And the TPLF have attempted in recent days to kind of try and internationalize the conflicts by stating that Eritrea has already sent troops into, into the Tigray region, and that is why they had launched rocket strikes against Asmara in Eritrea in retaliation for that uh, alleged intervention. Now, there hasn't been any real evidence of this. Um, the US ambassador responding to attacks called it completely unjustified, um, indicating that they also don't have any evidence of Eritrean involvement in the region. But it's, it's, it's certainly a possibility in the long run. I, I understand that the Eritrean government have stated that they, they won't respond to the recent attack and they won't engage in the region out of respect for Ethiopia. But I don't see that this is a position that they can maintain indefinitely if uh, Tigray were to continue to strike at, strike at them. This could be particularly damaging for the Ethiopian government because it would, uh, it would be seen among the wider Ethiopian uh, community as Abiy Ahmed working with a sort of historic adversary to oppress a region of Ethiopia. So that could uh, increase um, domestic opposition to Abiy Ahmed and would certainly further galvanize Tigrayan people. So yes, the, following the actions of the Eritrean government and, and how they are responding to this conflict will be crucial over the coming weeks, particularly if um, the TPLF continue to essentially goad them into some form of intervention. Thanks, Ben. So obviously a, a few things for us all to look out there, and I, I have a feeling that we're going to be talking about this for a, a while yet, given the potential for it to drag on, as you've all mentioned. So Ben, Phil, thank you both so much for joining us, and I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. And so, as ever, we want to round off the programme with a look forward at some of the things that are going to be coming up in the next few weeks. And joining us to do that is Ed Johnson, who leads our Insight team in London. Ed, welcome. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, always a pleasure, Ed. And I'm always keen to know what's on everyone's radars these days. So, um, you know, I guess this is, in fact, as we're going to press, this is the Brexit deadline. But of course, it sounds like it isn't now. Is that right? Yes, very much. This week was supposed to be the Brexit week, but it's now looking like next week with the 23rd seen as the new de facto deadline. Um, obviously, there have been a fair few of these all sort of days of, of reckoning to reach a deal um, between the EU and, and the UK government. But the 23rd is, is really now seen as the, the crucial deadline uh, to, to ratify any deal through Parliament before the end of the transition period. While talks could theoretically continue after that, um, this week really is, however, the, the crunch period. And if we don't have that agreement by the 23rd, the risk of an ODA will be significantly increased with the uh, you know, threatening scenario where the UK will leave on the 31st of December on, on WTO terms. 
Yeah, I think we always argue it's been the UK that's had to give way, but I love looking at Brexit dates because I reckon you can do some sort of almost regression or progression analysis and actually work out from the constant extensions uh, when that arrow finally hits uh, the tortoise. But I do get the impression that we're uh, we're getting very much closer to that now. And I know all eyes on that, certainly in the UK, over the next week or so, and some, some big sticking points we've discussed uh, already on the programme. So what else is uh, going on in the world, Ed? What else should we be looking for? Well, in a slightly different direction, uh, India, there's going to be a, a general strike, which has been called a, a, by unions against the government's sort of agricultural reforms uh, regulations around that sector. So 10 trade unions there have, have called for the general strike on the 26th, which will be nationwide, um, and is set to be accompanied by two days of protests from farmers groups. Um, the decision was made virtually, as is the, the, the times these days, and uh, you know, the farmers are, are going to continue to push for a government new turn um, which is slightly unlikely, given the entrenched position of, of the government and having the laws already being passed in, in September. Um, the protests are likely to be focused in Delhi, uh, which is obviously the business, you know, you're looking at loss of production due to workers being on strike, disruption to transport and logistics in and around the capital, and of course the, the sort of ever-present risk of, of unrest. As demonstrators and police gather, um, and it's possible, uh, we could see some, some violent clashes there. Moving on to a um, different country, but with similar sort of challenges around unrest is, is Colombia, where on the 21st of November, we're going to see uh, nationwide protests commemorating the one year anniversary of, of demonstrations last year over you know, those ever present issues of social inequality and uh, increasing economic insecurity, obviously compounded in the light of the, the, the impact of the pandemic, which has hit Latin American countries particularly hard. So demonstrators there are set to gather in, in Bogota and other major urban centers. And while the, the gatherings are likely to start off peacefully, um, there is a precedent this year already for, for deadly clashes between security forces and, and the sort of fringe groups on the edges of these protests, where, where in, in, uh, in September we saw the death of 13 protesters following uh, clashes with police in, in Bogota, Cali and Medellin. Yeah, so in both those circumstances, I think obviously COVID having a, an accelerant effect on those existing factors around unrest, I guess, isn't it? What's going on in Africa? We, we've covered East Africa on the programme already, and obviously the effects of what's been going on in Ethiopia and the regional consequences. What's going on in West Africa and the Sahel? So, actually, yeah, as, as you mentioned, on, on the 22nd of November in Burkina Faso, there's a presidential election. The, the main issue at play there is, is sort of a growing sense of anger over um, the growing insurgency, which uh, threatens to, to drive unrest. But it also, you know, the election itself provides a, a, a very viable um, target for for jihadists, particularly in those rural areas, you know, and obviously that threatens to uh, drive instability and also, uh, you know, sort of show the the, the capabilities of, of those armed groups. And the other big conflict we've been following, obviously, for a long period of time, and certainly for the last few weeks uh, since it's blown up much more, is Nagorno-Karabakh. And so, what's going to go on with that following the recent peace agreement or capitulation agreement, depending on which side you're on? Indeed, yes, the, the, the Armenian withdrawal from the nominally Azeri territories is, is ongoing. Um, the, the Azeris and the Turkish allowed a slight delay um, in with, with Armenia's withdrawal from, from one of the regions. But of course, the, the sort of growing story there is, is um, anti-government unrest and, and increasing government instability in, our, in Armenia itself, with uh, Prime Minister Pashinyan coming under, under calls for fresh elections and both political and um, threat, threats as well. Um, uh, the security services interdicted a plot to assassinate him. Um, so we're, we're, we're forecasting that you know, instability in the region itself will continue over, over the coming weeks and, and months. 
um, with, with Pachinyan's position very much uh, up in the air at the moment. So are we looking for potentially a more nationalist voice following obviously what's seen as a national defeat, I guess? Uh, do we think there's a significant risk of that with Armenia? Well, that's a really good question. I think the, the bigger challenge, rather than perhaps the, the nationalists, is the revanchist um, oligarchic powers with ties to Russia who've been using uh, the sort of ultra-nationalist scene to pressure Pashinyan and outflank him. But obviously, after Pashinyan deposed the, the former um, sort of elite in 2018, they're, they're very much keen to, to have their revenge. And certainly Russia's tacit support for them and you know, unwillingness to uh, back Pashinyan in the actual conflict itself in, in September, October, certainly plays into, into their hands quite substantially. So yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a complicated situation at the moment, but uh, it's, it's unclear whether you know, the, the sort of hysteria around um, the alleged capitulation of, by, by, by Pashinyan is really reflected throughout the wider population as opposed to just a sort of hardcore nationalist fringe. That's right. So that's one of the main things that we'll be looking to, to learn a bit more about, I guess, over the coming weeks. So, Ed, uh, thanks very much as ever for the update on what the team's looking at. And uh, thanks for joining us. I'm sure we'll hear, you, hear from you again soon. Thank you very much, Justin.